0: Good morning, welcome to our weekly Bible Talk. I'd encourage you to get your Bibles open to the book of Exodus. We're going to be talking about chapter 10, another one of the plagues. We're actually coming toward the end of the plagues. Um, And something you may have noticed if you tune into these Bible Talks regularly is how much space in Exodus is devoted to the plagues. I mean, it's an awful lot. I mean, we've been going over these plagues for several weeks now, um, and there are several total chapters devoted to these plagues, and that seems to be an awful lot. I mean, sometimes you think, couldn't God have just summarized this into a, you know, a couple of verses or something like that? Why spell this out so much? Well, there are a few lessons to be learned from that. I mean, first, uh, it does remind us of how much wrath there is in the Bible. A lot of people don't get this. Of course God is loving. Of course God is gracious and merciful, and we love that about God. If that weren't true about God, we'd all be utterly lost forever. But at the same time, God is also incredibly wrathful. He does not take sin lightly. Um, And part of the reason why there's so much devoted in Scripture to the wrath of God is to remind us of that. I mean, again, think of these chapters of the plagues. You could think of God's wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. You could think about God's wrath revealed in the flood. I mean, the flood itself, there's, again, like three or four chapters devoted there. Going throughout the entire Bible, you've got a lot of wrath in the major prophets, the minor prophets. When you come to the New Testament. Jesus is predicting wrath on Jerusalem, you know, uh, Matthew 24, 25. You get to the book of Revelation, there's a lot of wrath there it reminds us that there is uh, true wrath in the character of God. Now again, God's character is multifaceted. He's gracious, he's loving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's patient. But at the same time, he is also very wrathful. He does not take sin lightly. He hates it so much that he poured out his wrath on his son in our place on the cross. And we're reminded of that uh, in part from these plagues. And I think this is something that we as people who want to be fully devoted to scripture fully you know sort of bible shaped christians need to take more seriously Um, i I don't think we take the wrath of god as seriously as we should we we, and even those of us who sort of admit that it exists we kind of just sort of wink at it and then move on and talk about other subjects that we would prefer to talk about Uh, but no the god of the bible very much has a lot of wrath and if your sins aren't forgiven by the blood of jesus realize it's as if all of this wrath is going to be compiled together and poured out on you eternally in hell, which is a terrifying thought. Um, I was reading this morning uh, this old Puritan guy who said every time he thought about the day of judgment, uh, he trembled a little bit. Even though his sins had been taken away, he knows that he's got friends, loved ones, so forth, who are still outside of Christ and who are going to experience that wrath if they don't uh, turn to Jesus. And he, that, that caused him to tremble a little bit. And that ought to be our response as well when we ponder the wrath of God. I mean, these plagues that we've talked about have been horrific. You know, the death of livestock. I mean, and, uh, you know, bugs biting you until you know, you just, until you're going mad. Frogs, dead frogs all over the place, including in your bed. I mean, these these would be horrible. But again, imagine all of those compiled together um, at the same time forever. That is what we deserve for our sins. Uh, Let's believe that about God, but also thank God that Jesus endured all of that in our place on the cross. When he died, uh, they're hanging there in darkness uh, and, and forsaken by his Father. That's what was going on there. The cross is not just Jesus dying, it's yes, Jesus dying, but in the process absorbing the judgment of God in the place of all of those who would ever believe on him. From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every uh, period of time in human history, all of that poured out on Jesus during that time that he hung there on the cross. Uh, so let's believe in the wrath of God, let's tremble on behalf of our unbelieving Friends, loved ones, and implore them to trust in Jesus, but let's also thank God for Jesus' wrath-bearing death so that those of us who are in Christ will never experience this kind of wrath. Uh, Again, that's just some of what I'm reminded of whenever I see how much space is devoted to the plagues in the book of Exodus. Well, we come here to chapter 10, the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. And like last week, what I thought I'd do is instead of reading the entire thing, because again, we have a long plague here. This one is 20 verses. So instead of reading the entire thing and then going back and commenting on it, I thought I'd kind of work my way through it uh, like we did last week. Read a couple of verses, make some comments, read a few more verses, make some comments. That seemed to work okay last week. So let's give that a try again. Let me pray and then we'll jump into this. Pray with me. God in heaven, you are a God of wrath. Uh, you hate sin. You are a righteous judge, and you are angry with the wicked all day long, and that is a good thing. But we thank you, O God, for the way that for those of us who believe your wrath was spent on Jesus, he absorbed it in our place, he was pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities, so that now for those of us who are in Christ, others only, your fatherly affection and fatherly love. Thank you for that. Please do move us to tremble on behalf of our unbelieving loved ones, friends, family members, and implore them to trust in Jesus before it's too late. Lord, bless now our study here. Open our minds, open our eyes, uh, convict us of sin, lead us to repentance. Help me to make comments that bring out the true meaning and the intent of this passage. And as always, give us grace that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. In Jesus we pray, amen. Exodus chapter 10, we come to the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Let's begin. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. A couple of things there, we've talked a lot about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but here you'll notice that not only is Pharaoh's heart hardened, but the hearts of his servants. What this tells us is that this is not an experience totally unique to Pharaoh. Uh, yes, he's held up as sort of the example, but at the same time in Scripture there are several individuals whose hearts God hardens, and I don't think there's any reason to conclude that that doesn't take place sometimes today. It's kind of a scary idea, it's something that makes us uncomfortable, and yet do you notice the purpose behind this hardening? Verse 1: That I may show these signs of mine among them. Uh, The entire purpose behind this is so that I might receive more glory. Like we've talked about before, the entire goal behind everything God does is His own glory. Why did God create the world? Glorify himself. Why did God give us his law? Glorify himself. Why did God send a savior to glorify himself? That's really the driving goal behind everything. And if you get that, um, some of God's works make more sense. Now, still in our flesh, we might kick against that and think like, oh, I don't really like this. Well, uh, sorry, you're you're not God. You're not the one to answer back to God and to tell him what's up. You're to simply embrace what God has done. Um, But at the same time, recognizing that the motive here is his glory, you kind of get it. And you do see this illustrated well with Pharaoh. Uh, Say Pharaoh had repented way early on, like after the first plague, we would not have received these, these subsequent plagues and we would not have had all of these illustrations of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. We wouldn't have seen the way in which God is exalted over all the gods of Egypt, like we've been talking about in the series, uh, so we kind of get that that part of the reason why God is hardening Pharaoh is so that and his servants is so that he might glorify himself and it 's the same thing today if people uh, do wind up being hardened in their sins. A passage that you might reflect on as we think about being hardened in sin is Romans one, and there it seems to expand it out to the entire unbelieving world again it's not just Pharaoh and his servants, uh, all those who when they see the truth of God and suppress that truth. Part of the consequence of that is being hardened in their sin. Further, it's as if they're driving their fingers deeper and deeper into their ears and it makes it harder to hear the truth. Now again, that's kind of scary, but I think the application is to repent as soon as possible. You know, If you're still feeling the slightest conviction of sin, the slightest inkling to turn, uh, repent before you keep driving your fingers into your ears and get to the point where you can't even hear anymore. Am I making sense? Well, anyway so that I may show these signs of mine among them, and so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now there you begin to see, not begin, this isn't the first time this comes up in Scripture, but there is an evangelistic emphasis behind God's works. And it's particularly evangelism in the family. Did you catch that? I'm heartening Pharaoh so that I can display these signs so that you can then tell your kids about the great things that I have done so that they may know that I am the Lord. Do keep in mind that the great works of God are designed to be communicated. They're not designed to be hidden under a bushel or something like that. They're designed to be communicated, proclaimed, and again you see that all over the place in the Psalms. Uh, David will talk about, I will praise you and I will tell of your name among the nations. I will declare your glory. God's great works are designed by uh, intent to be proclaimed to the entire world, but especially to your kids and your grandkids. Really the place where evangelism ought to begin is in the family. Now certainly it can't end there you know the mission is to take the gospel of the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations but the sort of first and primary mission field that all of us have are our families. Uh, kids, grandkids, if you've got an unbelieving spouse, if you've got unbelieving parents, that's where you begin. Now it's not always easy. I mean, oftentimes our family relationships are awkward and, and you know there's a lot of baggage there and whatnot. But we cannot deny that the goal, not the great goal, but a motive behind why God does what He does is so that we would proclaim His works to our family members. Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. The only thing I'll say there is the connection between humility and obedience. Uh, for a lot of people, the reason why they don't obey is because they're proud. And you see that totally illustrated here with Pharaoh. Um, it wasn't that he was like, lacking in scientific evidence that Jehovah was God. It wasn't like he was lacking in uh, willpower or something like that. Uh, no, he was proud and uh, that's why he would not submit to Jehovah and and that's and again it's kind of a humbling thought to think that our biggest problem when it comes to obedience is not something out there it's not like the devil made me do it it's not like my circumstances were so incredibly Tense that I, I couldn't obey. You know, I really, really wanted to, but I just couldn't help myself. Um, of, of course, different circumstances can be more or less tempting, and of course, the devil does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But at the end of the day, the reason why we sin is because our hearts are proud and we want what we want, and we don't want to submit to God like Pharaoh. Uh, keep that in mind that will help the way that you fight sin you can't blame your sin on anything you can't blame it on your neighbor your kids uh immodestly dressed women alcohol you can't really blame it on anything you got you got to accept responsibility but once you begin there uh, and humble yourself you're in the perfect position for god to help you because the bible says repeatedly god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so if you'll admit the reason why i keep doing x is because i am a proud arrogant sinner who loves sin uh When you humble yourself, you're in the position to receive the help that you need to fight that sin. But so long as you're proud like Pharaoh, uh, it's just not going to work. You're going to continue to harden yourself in that sin. Verse 4, For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all of the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Now, most of us, if we're, say, around Muncie, aren't very familiar with locusts. Um, They they still exist, and there are still occasions where they uh, plague the world in unbelievable ways i remember hearing probably i don't know five eight years ago about this plague of locusts that you know wasn't like this what we're reading about here in this chapter is truly supernatural it's miraculous uh and yet still there are these giant like clouds of locusts that will swarm in you know i think if i remember correctly it happens mostly in the middle east they'll swarm in as like a cloud of giant bugs and again, I'm trying to recall some of what I remember from stuff I read several years ago, but locusts are kind of like giant grasshoppers. Uh, we do have grasshoppers around here, but they're usually kind of fun. You know, my kids enjoy catching them and kind of playing with them as little pets for a little bit before they let them go. Uh, but they're, they're, they're nothing really to be concerned about. Uh, Locusts are like grasshoppers but bigger. They're like uh, you know, the size almost like of a cigarette or something like that and they eat everything like crazy. So you could have this you know, jungle of vegetation and plants and you know, fruit and whatnot and this cloud of locusts comes in and within like a couple of hours it's like just this bare skeleton but there, there's nothing left. Uh, the plants, the leaves are gone, the fruit's gone, even the bark is gone so they just decimate things and again remind yourself this is all the wrath of god because of egypt in general and pharaoh in particular's rebellion because they would not humble themselves and submit to god uh, this is what's coming this cloud of locusts like nobody's ever seen before that will decimate egypt let's keep going verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, and interestingly, I think it's the same word used here as in verse 1, where it says the heart of his servants were hardened. So even though they're hardened, it doesn't mean that they're not sensible enough to recognize that this, what is about to come is terrifying. But verse 7, Pharaoh's servants said to him, "'How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined?' Uh, his servants are kind of speaking up, and if you think about pharaoh's position in egypt, uh this would have been a little bit what's what's the word? It would have taken courage to do because remember Pharaoh is much more than just like the president you know we we have a president, and typically we you know think he's got a lot of power, but we don't think of him as a god incarnate That's how they looked at Pharaoh as god incarnate, therefore, for these servants to say uh listen Pharaoh you know all, all, with all respect, uh, you're, you're going to destroy our nation if you don't let these, let the Israelites get out of here. So it took a little bit of courage, but they've got the common sense enough to look around and see that our nation is destroyed. Um, I don't think, again, we get how decimating the plagues were to Egypt. Uh, I think this comes from the movies. You know, if you watch... Prince of Egypt, if you watch the Ten Commandments, uh, toward the end of the plagues, Egypt still looks pretty fancy and impressive. You know, they got all the gold covered buildings and the sphinxes, and, you know, it still looks like things are uh, pretty well established. I tend to think that that's probably not entirely accurate. I mean, obviously, the pyramids didn't get eaten by the locusts, but. Everything is is decimated. I mean, think about the plagues that we've seen. I mean, the livestock destroyed, uh, people, you know, dead, water turned into blood, locusts eating everything, hail destroying your crops. I mean, this would have been just uh, sort of an economic and sociological destruction that our nation has never seen. I mean, it would have been similar to like, if you've ever, uh, personally, I'm a fan of World War II and I enjoy reading a lot about World War II. And if you've seen pictures of Berlin, after uh, World War II, you know, after VE Day, I mean, it was just like a giant, you know, puddle of uh, rubble. Uh, before World War II, Berlin's this beautiful city with, you know, Gothic cathedrals and you know opera houses and all sorts of art. Uh, after, it's just like you know piles of bricks. I mean, it's unbelievable. That's the sort of decimation that we should assume took place in in conjunction with the plagues on Egypt. Not just, uh, you know, it's not just that they like lost. A, it's not just like inflation went up 0.2 percent or something like. that i mean they're destroying the nation but again this is the wrath of god our sins deserve verse 8 so moses and aaron were brought back to pharaoh and he said to them go serve the lord your god but which ones are to go moses said we will go out with our young and our old we will go with our sons and our daughters with our flocks and herds for we must all the feast of the lord but he said to them the lord be with you if i ever let you and your little ones go look you have some evil purpose in mind no Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Now here's a theme that's come up before, but we need to talk about it again. The way in which Pharaoh is sort of trying to compromise with God, trying to negotiate with God. God says, let all the people go. Pharaoh's like, well, you know, I'm going to try and negotiate. You can let the men go, but keep the kids here. He kind of knows that if the kids are there, they're not going to go very far. I mean, every, you know, if any father who has any sense at all loves his kids. And, you know, by holding the children hostage, that means that the men need to eventually come back. Um, but one of the things that we see here is the way in which uh, negotiated obedience is sort of the sign of hypocrisy. Uh, it's pretty easy to talk God talk. And again, we see Pharaoh doing a little bit of that. By this time in the account, he's using Jehovah as the proper name of God. He's recognizing that these plagues are works of God. Uh, later on, he's going to ask you know, uh, Moses to pray for him. So it's pretty easy to talk God talk and yet to be a hardened sinner like Pharaoh. Additionally, it, it's kind of easy to do this negotiated obedience thing. Lord, I'll do this, this, and this, but I'm not going to do this, this, and this. Realize that that's a terrifying situation to be in because you can deceive yourself into thinking that i'm a believer when i'm re- in reality not Pharaoh is not a believer at all I mean and, I, and it, sadly, it seems as if he dies in his sins, but again he's able to talk God talk he does a little bit of negotiated obedience, but that is the mark of hypocrisy. True faith will result in this total surrender saying, "Lord here am I, send me now does that mean we're going to be perfect no Infinite, like dramatically far from perfect. We're still going to do a lot of things that we wish we did not do. It's the whole Romans 7 thing. The things that I hate, I keep on doing. The things that I you know, love, you know, I, I can't seem to get around to doing the things that I do. All Christians have that struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And yet there is in the heart of the true believer sort of this open hand, Lord I, I will obey you. I recognize that you are Lord. I recognize that you are God. It's not going to be easy, I'm not going to be able to do it without the help of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the ne- this negotiated obedience. And I want you to examine your life in light of this. Do you find yourself trying to sort of work compromises with God? God, I'll do X if you'll do Y. God, I'll follow you up to this point, but not beyond this point. Uh, Lord, I'll, you know, the classic example is would you become a missionary? Now, like, my assistant and I were just talking about a couple minutes ago, it's obvious the Lord does not call everybody to be a foreign missionary. Uh, most Christians aren't called to be foreign missionaries. Most Christians you know, are called to work ordinary jobs, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, housewife, teacher, police officer, and those are honorable vocations that you can glorify God in. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But the point I'm trying to make is that if it became manifest, manifest that the Lord was calling you to be a missionary, would you say, yes, here am I, Lord, send me? If part of you like, no, I'm not doing that, I will, not, I will not sign on that dotted line. Uh, you, you, you might want to be concerned because you might be interacting with God with this sort of negotiated obedience where in reality you're still Lord. and and you're just sort of using God to get what you want as opposed to giving God kind of a blank check and saying, Lord, whatever you say, uh, I'll do. Uh, So examine yourself. Are there ways in which you're doing that? Again, we're not talking at all about sinless perfection, which I I hate. I've I've seen that confuse a lot. A lot of people mess up their assurance of salvation. True Christian sin. And honestly, we sin like multiple times a day, but we hate it. And we believe that God's ways are best and we want to do God's ways, uh, even, even though, again, due to our flesh we struggle to do that. But anyway, think on that a lot. Negotiated obedience is not really obedience at all. You're just sort of uh, letting God affirm what you want, if that makes any sense. I think it was Augustine who said, if you only believe the things in the gospel uh, that you already agreed with beforehand, you don't believe the gospel at all, you just believe in yourself. So also, if you only obey God in these areas where you wanted to obey already... You're not really obeying God, you're just letting God sort of affirm your agenda, if that makes any sense. Whereas true obedience is this open hand saying, Lord, whatever you you want, I'm going to strive to do that. Whatever you're saying, whatever you're calling me to do, I'm going to aspire to do that. I'm going to fail miserably, uh, but that's at least my goal. Anyway, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all, pardon me, all that the hail has left. You'll remember that one of the previous plagues, hail had already obliterated things pretty badly, but there's still, you know, some stuff here and there. And probably between the plague of hail and this plague, other stuff has cropped up. You know, plants grow pretty quickly. Verse 13, So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before nor ever will be again. Uh, So, as we can see, what the Lord predicted has come to pass huge clouds of locusts. And again, Even to this day, when you see these clouds, maybe Google it, uh, clouds of locusts. I mean, they're crazy because they're so thick that they actually block the sun. You know, if if you've got a big enough thing, it's almost like an eclipse or something like that. Um, And the ones that are happening today are not supernatural. So imagine a supernatural one. I mean, it would have been horrific and scary such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been seen before nor ever will be seen again. Uh, That's something to ponder. The Bible often talks this way, Uh, this will never happen again. The Bible can only talk that way since it's a supernatural book because how could Moses in 1400 BC know that this sort of plague would never happen again? And to this day it's never happened to this degree. The Bible can talk that way and this isn't the only place where it talks this way. There are plenty of occasions where it says that this sort of thing is so bad it's like the worst thing that's ever happened or ever will happen. When it predicts that way about the future reminding you that the bible is a supernatural book and god is speaking through it anyway verse 15 they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field though all, through all the land of egypt then pharaoh hastily called moses and aaron and said i have sinned against the lord your god and against you Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please. Only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Pause there. Uh, We talked earlier about Pharaoh's sort of hypocritical obedience, a hypocritical faith in Jehovah. Uh, I don't really know how to describe it. You know, it's, it's it's definitely not saving faith, but at the same time, it's not this sort of rank atheism. You know, he uses God talk. He recognizes that you know Jehovah's behind this stuff. He even says, "I have sinned, and I need forgiveness." realize you can say all of that and not actually be born again again i'm not trying to freak people out but some of us need to be freaked out some of us are way too comfortable in our sin and in our sort of fake profession um and do realize that you can recite the right words you know you can recite all the words of the sinner's prayer and you know but if that's not backed up by true faith it's it's meaningless and it's really no different than Pharaoh here. So again, examine yourself. Don't spend all day on this, you know, unless unless you know you're not converted. Um, but do realize that you can say all the right words and go through all the right customs and whatnot, and, and still not be born again. And I, I think maybe the. Uh, clearest evidence of that is that negotiated obedience that we talked about earlier. If you're if you're still sort of steadfastly saying I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, um, you know, ask yourself, do I actually believe what I profess, or might I still be lost in sin and just sort of going through the motions? Anyway, um, verse 17. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. I mean, that's such orthodox. That's how you're supposed to say, you know, he's not saying like, you know, uh, forgive my mistake. He's saying, forgive my sin. I've done wrong here. Uh, Only this once and plead with the Lord, your God only to remove this death from me. So, I mean, he's again, talking the right talk. Verse 18. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. So here again, here's the sort of accompanying miracle. Uh, this cloud of locusts that was so thick you couldn't even see through it now all of a sudden whoosh, the wind blows and they're all gone uh, that that doesn't happen except by a miracle you, you don't have a wind that blows every bug out of your land um, that, that's not a miracle but that is the sort of thing that happened here indicating uh, a couple of things first that this is a true miracle but second, it's also showing the way in which God has power over more than just the land of Egypt. You know, somebody can, and this, believe it or not, was actually an early idea that different gods ruled in different areas of the world. Uh, you know, Jehovah sort of followed the Israelites, and wherever they were, he was at work. Uh, Baal kind of went around with the Babylonians, and wherever they were, that's where he was at work. It, the technical word for this is henotheism, which. Basically, few people believe in still today, but it was an idea that comes out sometimes in the Bible uh, that god 's had these like territories, um, and that 's why Jehovah is at work here in Egypt because the Israelites are there, but if they had gone to you know i don 't know California, then you know it wouldn 't have worked that wasn 't god 's territory or something like that, but this is showing no God is the God of all the earth he 's taken these locusts, he's blown him in and then he's blowing them out of the country, showing that his power is overall, which again is only what we would have known had we believed the first few chapters of Genesis. the God made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them uh, that's the kind of God that God is, not this God of like different territories um so he blew him into the Red Sea, obviously we're going to come back to the Red Sea a little bit later. Uh, not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt now verse twenty, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Uh, God removes that restraining grace uh Pharaoh you know he's he's kinda thinking properly, he's kind of humbling himself, he's kinda thinking I've sinned, and i I need forgiveness, uh but to show his glory, God removes the restraining grace and allows Pharaoh's pride to swell back up so that he doesn't let the people go, so that's the eighth plague, the plague locus and he quick things that we could pray in light of this. Uh, We've talked about a lot today, and I think that this is one of the longer ones I've done lately, but uh, God has got a wrath. Let's believe that and let that move us to get to know our neighbors and to share the gospel with them. our God is the God of the entire world, and because of that He desires the worship of every people group on the planet. Let's pray for more missionaries, and God's blessing on missionaries, that people all around the world would be saved. Let's pray that God would help us declare His works to others, especially our children, because again that's kind of the entire design behind God's works, that we would declare them to others, especially our kids. Um, anything else I'm trying to think here? Uh, it's, we praise God for His power over nature. Uh, that He, that not a we, in the New Testament, it says, "Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Not a locust lands on a leaf apart from your will, uh, apart from the will of our Father in heaven." That's the kind of God that we know and worship. Uh, so let's pray that God moves us to stand in awe of such a God. Let me pray, and we'll be done. Oh God in heaven, you are a God of wrath, a God to be feared. Uh, you are a consuming fire. Please help us to believe this, and please. For those of us who believe, be moved by that to get to know unbelieving neighbors and to share the gospel with them, that they might be saved. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to declare your great works to all, uh, to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Bless missionaries, raise up more missionaries. Please plant good gospel churches all around the world. But help us to first and foremost evangelize our family members, our kids, our grandkids, that they might be saved and continue to convey the knowledge of God to the next generation. Father, we praise you for the way that you are uh, in control of nature, uh, bugs and birds, uh, these do your will. Um, and and they, they are, in a way, your uh, un, uh, unwitting servants. Thank you for that. Uh, Lord, you are a great and awesome God. Please move in us that we might stand in awe. Lord, every day we are exposed to your glory. We see it in creation. We read about it in the scriptures. And yet, so oftentimes, we're cold and dull and uh, far more interested in Facebook. Forgive us of that. And please move us to absolute awe at who you are and what you've done. Uh, We do thank you again for our Savior Jesus and for the way that he has rescued us from the wrath to come. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week.